0: Funding for Think is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education.
1: You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. What puts young people at risk for unintended pregnancy in their teens, and are those risk factors somehow higher in Texas? While teen birth rates have fallen nationwide, Texas still has the fifth highest rate of births to young women under the age of 20. And most children of those very young parents face a far greater lifetime risk of poverty, poor health, joblessness, and early pregnancy themselves. So how can well-meaning adults who disagree about the messages we need to give our children about sexuality, contraception, and abstinence find ways to help teens make wise choices? Joanne Gensch uh, is Assistant Dean in the School of Behavioral and Brain mm-hmm. Sciences at UT Dallas. Mandy Goldman is Assistant Professor in the Department of Health Studies at Texas Women's University. Welcome, both of you, to Think. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, so we should note here that um, we have made progress, right? Uh, birth rates in Texas fell more than 40% between 1991 and 2012. What accounts for that?
2: Um, that's a good question. You know, really... I think when you look at the issues, we're seeing that teens are delaying having sex. Um, They're willing to wait longer. They're also reporting fewer sex partners. And then we're seeing across the board better use of contraception. And all of those, I think, are accounting for lower rates in teen birth.
3: I was going to say it's all related to education, and that's something that Mandy and I feel passionate about is, is is having those those levels of communication open with with families, with with schools, with faith-based institutions, et cetera. That's making a difference.
1: So what's different in Texas that we've made somewhat less progress than other states that have rep- reported like 60 percent declines? Um,
2: I'd like to say everything. <laughs> <laughs> everything is different in everything Texas. Everything is different in Texas. Um, a couple of different things. Uh, we have much stricter laws as far as accessing to contraception for teens we also do not have comprehensive sex education in schools less than half of our school districts in Texas offer any sexuality education in their districts at all and of those that do 94 percent offer an abstinence only curriculum so our students really are not getting the health information that they need here in Texas I would say that's our biggest concern
1: has the efficacy of abstinence only sex education been compared in um qual- you know controlled studies with um comprehensive sex education yes.
3: number number of studies have yes. been looked at and and you know a lot of the conversation is is do we all believe in abstinence and, and this, this, the answer is yes, we, we believe that 's the best way to you know to cut out risky sexual behavior to eradicate teen pregnancy, et cetera. But what happens is when you ask people if they believe in abstinence, they always say yes, but that doesn 't of course then you know correlate with their behaviors and so there have been a number of studies looking at these different curriculum, which of course range widely, uh, and there 's many, many variations and so looking at specific curriculum abstinence plus abstinence only comprehensive. It's, it's just a very complex issue, and there's all sorts of ways it has to
1: be looked at. What do we yeah. know about um, teenagers who don't get sex education at school? Where do they go for information?
2: Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> um, they often go to the internet, which we know can either be good or bad, depending on the site that they're looking. They often go to friends, and they often go to media. So unfortunately, there aren't necessarily a lot of good, credible resources for teens to go to as it relates to sexuality information. I think it's really interesting. I actually teach a women's health class at uh, TWU, and the majority of my students are upperclassmen. And it's interesting to me when we get to the unit on anatomy and physiology, contraception, STDs, this is all new information to them. These are 20, 21 year old students, and it's brand new. And they say, Oh my gosh, I've never had this. I never knew this. This is what I thought. And it's stunning to me that these are the kids that are coming out of majority Texas schools. And this is the first time they're seeing this credible, quality, fact based information at 2021.
1: 20, A lot of parents feel like if they have a strong faith tradition in their family, that's all the sex education their kids need because they will believe that they simply shouldn't be having sex until they're married. What do we know about how that works in practice?
3: Well, again, you know, so much of it has to be focused on the parents' value system, but that doesn't start in high school or in, you know, any kind of uh, standardized curriculum. That starts in the family very early on. And if you have a strong faith-based, you know, background, you share those values with your kids, but it doesn't have to be on – Prohib- you know, prohibitions against certain behaviors. It can be, you know, we believe in strong relationships. We believe in commitment. We believe in, in caring about people and respecting people. That's the overarching view that you can share as a parent. And that starts early on when they first start talking about any of these issues. Uh, and so, again, you don't have to pull out your values. You don't have to replace them with this this more sort of technical information. They might get some of that elsewhere, and then you can sort of fill in the gaps with what you believe. And so we never want to be promoting one particular view. What we say is what, what your values are is important, but they need to have scientifically right. valid information.
2: Right. And one thing I always, you know, just to add to that is I, my favorite talk, I do a lot of parent talks, and my favorite one is actually the preschool talk you know of, to preschool parents because that is really where it starts. And the one thing that I say just to add to what Joanne is saying is that I tell parents right then and there, you better start thinking about your family values and the messaging that you want to be giving your kids, because they're going to be getting it for their entire lifetime, and you want yours to be the strongest. You want yours to be the ones that they hear, and you need to start formulating those now, frequently and often, (laughs) and discussing that with them, just like what she was saying. and That's why I love that age so much, because it really sets a foundation for a lifetime of discussion.
1: Yeah, the talk is never just one talk. Right. It's a variety Mm
2: -hmm. of talks, several over the course of (laughs) their... their... Are there
1: particular strategies? I was interested to read, first of all, that that parents are more influential than maybe they Mm -hmm. start to feel once their kids are teenagers. Um, Are there particular ways of approaching these conversations that seem to work better than others?
3: Well, I always say that you know people always say, "When should I first start talking about this?" And I always say when they ask or when they when they indicate in some way that they don't know something, of course. Then you know I'm a developmental psychologist, and so I always say you have to focus on developmental appropriateness of the information. If they ask, you know, Mom, why are those two people kissing? They don't need to know the whole reproductive story. You can say, well, perhaps they love each other, or you know, <laughs> whatever you want to tell them, depending on their age. And then you can you can fill in the gaps as you go. Um, there's there's always that ongoing discussion, and parents can always jump in and share that information. As kids get older, they they recognize that this is a... um a difficult topic, that people are embarrassed, that perhaps they they make fun of it, or they people will share, isn't this a cute story my child said, and it was so inappropriate, and, <laughs> and obviously then, you know, that becomes embarrassing for them as well. Uh, and so parents need to be sensitive to the child's stage and age and how they're responding to the feedback they're getting. And so, again, that's knowing your child, knowing um, not to shame them, not to ridicule them, and also to be what we call askable parents. That's and And... Responding <laughs> responding appropriately to whatever it is they ask. And and you know, I, I want to add one more thing too, with you know, with our um Our culture, our society, the way things are now, when when kids get into adolescence, they start breaking away from their parents. They watch movies by themselves. They go in their room. They watch whatever they're watching. Parents are watching whatever they're watching. I always say to parents, you know, from very early on, watch Mm -hmm. what your kids are watching. Talk about these things because that's the opportunity to share your values again and to say, you know, gosh, that Gossip Girl episode, what did you think about that? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, again, these sort of unrealistic, glamorized views of sexuality having that discussion all along will make a big difference
1: how important are um, how important is it that parents communicate their expectations for their young people about how they will behave as as um, as teenagers but also as sexual beings yeah.
2: I think it's very important I think you start that conversation early and often just as I said before and that it's okay for parents to set expectations for your children of what you see you know, what kind of behaviors you would like to see in them. I know with my own children, I'm constantly having those conversations, not in a preachy lecture kind of way. In fact, it's often around some TV show, just like, you know, Joanna mentioned of, I'll say, what did you think about that? And gosh, I would hope, you know, do you think your friends are doing that? And do you think there's pressure to do that? I always just try and get a pulse for on them, on what do they think is going on? Do they think their peers are doing that? What do they think about that? And then I inject my own little... I don't think that's necessary at this age. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's appropriate. I think it's okay for parents. I think parents are so afraid to, to p- make a value because they're afraid their kids are going to go against it, but kids are repeatedly telling us in studies that they want to hear from their parents. They want to hear what parents have to say, and they want that reinforcement from them.
1: It's interesting that you point out you know, asking about their friends because it's a little bit maybe less direct yes. and less threatening and exactly. less, oh, God, here comes a lecture, <laughs> exactly. than saying, what are you doing? Exactly. Exactly. Um, I was surprised and interested to read in the research that parents who are really, really strict with their kids, the sort of lock them away until they're 30 parents – um, those young people are at a greater risk for teenage pregnancy. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. There's that there's that sort of sweet spot between mm-hmm. between being too controlling and being, you know, lackadaisical in your supervision. And one of the, the, the big findings for um, helping kids in any kind of risky behavior, you know, this, this goes across the board, this is just general parenting 101, uh, is that parental supervision, parental monitoring is very important, but you want to do it with finesse, you want to do it with... Um, not jumping into their business every every chance you can, uh, not being over controlling, not being intrusive, uh, not being uh, punitive, uh, but again, just knowing what's happening, knowing when to step in, knowing when they need help, giving them those that kind of information. The other thing is is that that we we give them all sorts of um, prohibitions about all sorts of things you know don't look both ways when you cross the street etc but because sexuality is something that's so difficult for all of us to talk about we don't give them those clear-cut messages we give them this, this very generic you know when you're going out tonight be good you know right. and and they don't know what being good means and so sometimes you have to be very specific about what you mean about what being good means or not even putting that value judgment on it don't calling it being right. good be you know make good choices Safe. but why <laughs> what those are that kind of thing.
1: All right, let's talk about access to contraception. First of all, what do we know about how easy and affordable access to contraception affects the decisions teenagers make to either have sex or not have sex?
2: Um, we know it has a big impact. I mean, if you look at the states that have the lowest teen birth rate, they have much greater funding and accessibility to contraception. And we know that is certainly it's not the entire piece of the pie of why our birth rate is so high, but we cannot say it's not a part of it. It is definitely a part of it. So we know that. And we know that in Texas, it is very hard for teens to get birth control here without parental consent. And going back to the parenting issue, even as it relates to parental consent for contraception, is that I think that everybody hopes that your child will come to you. And I think that you can do everything right as a parent. You could follow our best advice here on this show, and you still may have a child that is not comfortable coming to you. Some children are just not like that. and. If they are not comfortable going to their parents, or in a worse case, they don't have a parent that they can go to, they don't have any options available to them.
1: And and the fact that they don't necessarily have access to contraception doesn't automatically lead to them saying, all right, then I will abstain from all sexual activity. Correct. Mm -hmm.
2: We wish that were the case, (laughs) of course. We wish that. Uh, But as we know, one, teens are impulsive often. I mean, they don't always think— Things through, through as they should, and they're probably going to take action even when they're not even when they can't take care of themselves as much as they want, and We know that about teens they they tend to be risk takers in general, so um, the more that we can protect them and give them all the tools, and I think give them the information I know that there's a lot of thought out there that giving teens all of the information about birth control is basically a, a permission slip to have sex but Research does not support that, and abstinence plus curriculum have actually been shown to be more effective. So strong abstinence message, strong skill building, including risk you know, taking um, assessments and decision-making skills, future planning, along with comprehensive birth control information actually causes teens to delay. I mean, they're actually going to delay. They're not going to engage in, in risky sexual behavior.
1: We're speaking this hour with Mandy Goldman, who is Assistant Professor in the Department of Health Studies at Texas Woman's University, and Joanna Gensch, Assistant Dean in the School of Behavioral and Brain Sciences at UT Dallas. We're talking about the high teen pregnancy and birth rate in Texas. If you'd like to join the conversation to ask a question or maybe talk about how your family has navigated this issue, we would love to hear from you at 1-800-933-5372. You can also email think at kera.org or send me a tweet at Chris Boyd's.
0: Funding for Think is made possible by SMU continuing and professional education with courses in art, literature, history, communication photography, and Portuguese. Fall registration is now open. Registration and information at smu.edu slash c-a-p-e.
1: You're listening to THINK on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're talking this hour about the teen pregnancy and birth rate in Texas with two guests who are members of the North Texas Alliance to Reduce Teen Pregnancy. Joanna Gensch is Assistant Dean in the School of Behavioral and Brain Sciences at UT Dallas. Mandy Goldman is Assistant Professor in the Department of Health Studies at Texas Woman's University. If you'd like to be part of our conversation, you can call 1-800-933-5372 or email THINK at KERA K-E-R-A dot org. How important is it to talk about more than just the horrible consequences and dangers of sex?
3: Again, I think that's a, a, a parenting ongoing dialogue with kids. And, and it's not even just you know, heterosexual behavior, it's, it's sexual orientation, all these kinds of issues that kids are learning about, they want to know about, they're curious, and they, again, they want to know your values and they want to understand the broader culture and all those different kinds of views. And so if they're being given messages about how dangerous sex is, how risky it is, how terrible it is, how, you know, they're going to have social-emotional adjustment issues if they engage in it early on, we know that, that, that you know, sexual behavior with adolescents is, is normative for older kids. Mm -hmm. I'm talking, you know, 18 on. Uh, and so indicating that, that, again, it's it's part of a loving relationship, but it's, you have to prepare yourself to know that there's all sorts of facets of sexual behavior.
1: This is a little bit off topic because obviously this wouldn't result in teen pregnancy. But um, one thing that I think maybe parents struggle with is if they have an LGBT teenager. Um, it's one thing to be able to give advice to a child who is in a heterosexual relationship. What do you say to straight parents who have a gay or lesbian teen and want that child to have have good information but maybe don't have a frame of reference?
3: Well actually LGBT teens are Actually, at high risk for pregnancy. Yeah, there's, ident- yeah, a, lot yeah, there's mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of searching for identity. A lot of searching for identity. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of work on this. And so again, there's th- perhaps there's there's um, less concern on parents' end. You know, I don't need to talk about these things, but there's a lot of of risk there and a lot mm-hmm. of um, soul searching that, that that teen is doing of who am I, what am I going to be, what is my life going to be like? And so perhaps they then uh, get engaged in in relationships riskier. or riskier. Or riskier behaviors as well.
1: Um, Does declining access to abortion in Texas contribute to our higher than average rate of teenage births?
2: We don't really have that information yet. I don't think, I think we won't know that for another year or two, um, whether we'll see how that affects. I think that there is a prediction that it will impact that, but I don't know that we can absolutely say that at this point. 1-800-933-5372
1: 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. Let's go on the phone now to Xander on the line in Waco. Hi, Xander.
0: Hi. Uh, thank you all for the show. It's been a really interesting experience. Um, I was just going to say, I grew up in a faith-based home, but my dad gave the unique perspective of saying, you can do anything you want. You want to go blow stuff up. You want to go you know, melt some things. You <laughs> can do that. You have to do it in a safe environment. There's a safe way to do everything. There's a safe way to, you know, go have some of the fireworks. There's a safe way to have sex as well. And he used that as a transition point. But I was wondering if you guys had any experience in the difference between a faith-based home and a non-faith-based home and how that affects it. Well, again, I think there's a
3: lot of individual differences, and I'm glad that your dad had that communication from you. Part of of what we find in, in parents' communication with kids is that moms do a pretty good job talking to their daughters. They do a fairly decent job talking to their sons. And then dads do a fairly decent job talking to their daughters, believe it or not. But the the person who gets the le- le- least amount of communication is the son. And so boys are at a real disservice. So I'm glad that you had that kind of relationship with your parent, that they could share that information with you and give you some guidance. And so that's fantastic. Um, I think it's it's really hard to to judge based on uh, individuals or, or groups. I think it's very, very much um, related to goals and values of, of the, the child of, you know, so many individual differences that are involved that it's hard to to base that.
2: Right. I I would agree wholeheartedly. Um, I think just values, whether they're faith-based or not, or what is the key there. And I think that's what your father was giving to you was his values. I will say that from community programming, so not faith-based home, but faith-based community, we do see that um, some of the young women that have maybe participated in a faith faith-based program that really promotes a chastity vow, virginity, high value on that, they often tend not to take care of themselves if they choose to have sex. And that's been a real interesting study to see in that they often want to make it look more like they got carried away because they don't want to feel the shame of having thought about having sex or being, quote, called a slut or making a wrong decision that it would be easier to explain their behavior as Being caught up in the moment, then actually a premeditated decision where they would then take action. So I think in some ways, some of those programs, some, not all, there's some very good ones, but some can be actually more difficult for teens to navigate.
1: It's funny, the logic of the teenage yes. brain and having to get inside of that. <laughs> yes. And I remember when I was a teenager, I had friends who said, my parents have told me they would kick me out of the house if mm-hmm. I got pregnant. And, and as the parent of teenagers now, there's a, just a tiny fraction that gets like, great, make this threat, and they won't do it. Mm-hmm. But I would worry that they then wouldn't feel they could come to me if something exactly. happened. Mm-hmm.
2: Exactly. And that's exactly what I'm saying. These young women, they might be thinking for two weeks that they're having sex. And this is straight out of their mouth. This is not my, mm-hmm. <laughs> not my opinion. Um, You know, for two weeks, they could be planning to having sex with a boyfriend but not admitting it to anybody because it's easier for them to explain away getting caught up because that's a more teenage behavior than actually thinking it through, taking action, getting on birth control because then that would make them look like they're making a poor decision. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah.
1: Um, Many parents feel that they know their kids very well, that they supervise them very well, and they are absolutely confident that everybody else is having sex, but my kid is not interested. Um, We have to know that that's not true for everybody. So um, how much can we assume that that we're getting the truth from our teenagers, and and what do we do if we suspect we're not and that they might be engaging in things that, that are not good for them?
3: I think with the, the teen peer culture now is, you know, there is there are trends for less dating, less less romantic relationships in adolescence. And so parents, I hear from a lot of parents, like, I don't have to worry about that. My my, my child does not have mm-hmm. a, a significant other. They're not dating. They don't have a boyfriend. Yeah, they still have to worry. There's still sexual behavior. Uh, oftentimes, the conversation about being safe with sex comes when somebody gets involved in a romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of like the proverbial shutting the barn door after the cows are out, um, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's too late. Mm-hmm. And again, that conversation has to be coming earlier. And, and you know, parental supervision, you know, crosses everything. You, you, have to, you have to know who your child's friends are. You have to know what they're doing, where they're going, who they're spending time with. That's all really important for not just this kind of issue, but all sorts of issues. And it's, it's just important to be involved in your child's lives and involved with, with their, you know, their friend's parents, knowing who they are, all sorts of things give you, give you access to that information.
1: is our telephone number. We have Jennifer on the line in Carrollton. Hi, Jennifer.
0: Hi. um, I have a question. I've
1: got,
2: you know, my kids are really young right now, but I'm already looking at schools. And for those of us who do want more of the curriculum-based sex education, and
1: along with the, um, the, you know, the other methods, the faith-based as well, where would we go to find that since it's not offered in public schools.
3: Well, it is. It is offered yeah. in public schools, and there's actually a lot of good resources. Um, Mandy can add to this as well. As part of our alliance, uh, we've got some of the larger school districts involved, and they're they're really joining the dialogue. Carrollton is one of them. Carrollton actually is one of them. Yeah, we have uh, uh, representatives from Carrollton Farmers Branch School District on our alliance, uh, and so there's a lot of information. As a parent, you'll get information about what program your child will be exposed to, but even apart from that, as an as a Parent advocate, you can become part of what they call SHAC. Um, I don't know if that's if, if every school district every has school that. district is okay. mandatory that okay. they and, have. And it. what does that stand for? Many? It stands
2: for Student Health Advisory Committee or School Health. I think School Health Advisory Council. Actually, sorry. Um, and every it's mandatory that every school district has one. And I would strongly encourage you to get involved. You can either contact your local school and ask for it to be nominated um, by your principal. Or you could go directly to the health services manager of the district and ask to be added that way. And there is a vetting process, but they love to have parents involved. And that way you'll certainly know what's going on. And also at any time, you can, again, call that health services manager and ask what what kind of curriculum they're doing at Carrollton Farmers Branch. What are their plans? How effective is it? So don't be afraid to ask those questions and get involved because – what we find is that 84 percent of parents actually want comprehensive programming in the schools, but that it's a vocal minority that oppose it. And they're the ones that are the most vocal. And so they're actually winning when 84 percent would prefer a more comprehensive approach. So we
1: have an email here from Cindy who asks, what is the cost of teen pregnancies to Texas taxpayers?
2: Excellent question. Mm-hmm. Um, overall, in the nation, it's about nine billion to, and Texas? Annually. A, annually. Mm-hmm. Annually. And Texas accounts for $1.1 billion of that. So 50 states, $9.1 billion. Texas accounts for $1.1 billion. So it's a huge cost.
1: What do we know about the risk factors of having a sibling who has had a teen pregnancy? I,
3: You know, there, there's all sorts of research about the family structure and the, the sort of intergenerational um you know a uh, cycle of this you know oftentimes again if if you if your mother was a teen parent then you're more likely to be a teen parent siblings are are part of that mix of course a lot of that is is the neighborhood you live in we have certain hot spots in Dallas that you know basically have have much 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 higher rates of of teen pregnancy than others and so much of that is socioeconomic um, uh, difficulties po- challenges of poverty and you know again when you look at what what the lifelong trajectory is for young parents, both males and females, it is. It's it's not just that annual mm-hmm. cost. It's it's forever, right? right. And, and um, stepping back into early childhood again, giving kids you know, ways to reach their goals, providing them with programming that perhaps, you know, steers them into something that that will engage them in the schools. All these things are important uh, and will help delay all that early parenting uh, concern.
2: And I I just would like to add to that in that I work with many, many teen moms at TWU. I mean, we have a, a large number of teen moms. And these are spectacular, bright, articulate women that have made it out but they represent 2%, 2%. So when I'm talking in community health and we're looking at, we're actually in my class looking at these hotspots, I'm very clear, you know, you are the 2% <laughs> that has actually made it to college. Most will not. And 50% will make it through high school. And so while well, we can't ignore the facts, you know, that, that it is very, very tough on economy and on teen moms to actually be a teen mom.
1: How do we help um, existing teenage mothers not um, have a second child also in their teen years or a third child?
2: Yeah, there's actually quite a few great programs available to teen moms. Uh, Part of the problem, I think, as you know, Texas is ranked first in second births to teen moms. So that is a problem. I think we don't have a lot of the larger social supports that other states have. We also, again, it comes back to contraception. And I know you're going to say this is crazy, but if a 15-year-old has a baby, she still cannot get birth control without parental consent. So she could be a teen mom. But Raising she can, her own child. Yes, she but can't. cannot get birth control. So um, that's a problem, you know, and that a lot of, especially the schools have excellent programs, actually. The schools have, it's incredible, like they don't have excellent programs for prevention, but they have excellent programs for supports of teen moms. So if a teen mom actually stays in school, they have great, in fact, several of the People that are in this um, field are on our alliance, and they actually work with the teen moms in the schools to help keep them in school and you know make sure they graduate, make sure that they get the support that they need. In fact, the teen moms that are at TWU, they all say it was almost those programs that got them through. Mm-hmm. But the key is that they have to stay in school. If they're not staying in school, they often don't have access to those those programs.
1: So clearly we want to expand that number beyond 2%, right? Yes. If, if we're going to have people, I mean, I think f- until the, the world stops turning, we're going to have people who get pregnant earlier than they expect right, to. Right. Um, how do we keep them in these programs or in school so that they can do well for themselves and for their babies?
2: Well, I, I do think it's also interesting um, is that it used to be, say, 20 years ago, if you were a Dallas ISD student and you got pregnant, you went to health special and you that was a school for pregnant moms and they had a nursery there and so that was so helpful what happened as the stigma was kind of erased girls started not wanting to go to that school and staying in their home school and so that school is almost essentially put out of business <laughs> they lost their nursery funding and so you know it's and and they're getting lost i mean that was a great way to keep tabs on those girls now they're getting a little bit more lost as they're staying in their home schools and so it's really keeping track of them. The other thing that I cannot ignore, and this kind of goes back to all of the other supports, is that affordable child care. You know, if these young women don't have a mom or an aunt or somebody that's going to watch this baby, there's very little resources for them, you know, for affordable child care. So that's a big part of it.
1: Let's go back to the phones now. This time we have Daniela on the line in Fort Worth. Hi, Daniela. Hi. I um, have two boys, and I had heard you mention uh, about 10 minutes ago that boys are actually the segment that get the least amount of attention mm-hmm. or focus when it comes to proper education and how to to help them through this teen this teen process mm-hmm. of finding mm-hmm. out how to carry on sexual relationships. And um, I have two boys that are very different, and um, so I have a feeling I'll be dealing with this in two different ways. But I wondered if you had any tips or. Any guidance on what you had found was particularly effective, and I can take my answer off there. Thanks, Virgo.
3: All the studies that look at uh, relationships between how parents communicate different messages, you know, by gender or whatever, talk again about just strong relationships. And boys who are closer to their mothers actually – do better in this area. Boys whose mothers give them the messages that it's not OK to um, have, you know, multiple partners to not, you know, have to be playing several different girlfriends at once. All those kinds of messages. It's not just about the sexual behavior, but it's about relationships and it's about uh, respecting your partner respecting their needs and that kind of thing and so in that context of that of that ongoing dialogue moms can can share that information with their sons now dads again need to get better at um and it's not that they don't want to be just that nobody really asks it of them other than having that talk sitting their son down mm-hmm. that one time and and you know filling them in on the the birds and the bees which is typically usually too late right. uh but but dads need to be empowered and moms need to to let them be empowered too because oftentimes you know it there's sort of a, a struggle between p- parents who's going to say what and who's going to deal with this, and again within a relationship, if you're having, um, if you're modeling certain behaviors at home with your spouse, mm-hmm. that's important too. How you talk to each other in front of your kids, all those, all those kinds of things have to be evaluated because it can make a big, you know, impression a- across time.
2: Yeah, I, I would also add to that um, especially with boys I think driving in the car is a great opportunity to they get can't to, escape yes carpool, <laughs> carpool you know mm-hmm. it's a great opportunity or if somebody somebody says something it's a good opportunity or listening to music it's a good opportunity so finding those seizing on those opportunities when they arise and just kind of grabbing a hold and having the discussion right then i always think is helpful
1: mandy goldman is here from texas Woman's university along with joanna gench from ut dallas both are members of the north texas alliance to reduce teen pregnancy we'll resume our conversation in a couple of minutes join us at 1-800-933-5372
0: Funding for THINK is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education with courses in art, literature, history, communication, photography, and Portuguese. Fall registration is now open. Registration and information at smu.edu. slash C-A-P-E.
1: You're listening to THINK on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. My guests this hour are both members of the North Texas Alliance to Reduce Teen Pregnancy, which will be having a launch event August 21st for its programs. You can find out about that on their Facebook page. Uh, my guests, of course, are Joanna Gansch, who's Assistant dise- uh, Dean <laughs> excuse me, in the School of Behavioral and Brain Sciences at UT Dallas, and Mandy Goldman, Assistant Professor in the Department of Health Studies at Texas Woman's University. You can join us at 1-800-933-5372. We have Jim on the line in Waxahachie. Hi, Jim.
0: Hi, how are you? Great, thank you. Uh, great program. Uh, I know that seven out of 10 10- high school seniors in Texas have been sexually active, or that's what uh, the CDC says. Uh, Are our kids any more or less sexually active than kids in states with much lower teen birth rates?
1: Interesting question.
2: Excellent question. Yes, they are actually more sexually active than other states, about 5% more. You know, it was actually the report that came out, um, I want to say it was this past fall, that was actually based really on Dallas ISD students, but their reports of sexual activity and engagement at a much younger age were significantly higher than the national average, and that's polling. That's from the Youth Behavior Risk Survey, which polls 43 different states, huge urban school districts. So a good comparison, and DISD students are actually much much riskier behaviors, less likely to use birth control. and. I want to say eight percent were engaging in sex younger than thirteen compared to maybe three or four percent of the national average.
1: What does it take to ascertain that a teenager or anyone else for that matter um, reports honestly about his or her sexual behavior?
2: We repeat that again yeah,
1: how do you make sure that they 're telling the truth when yep. you ask how much sex they 're having
2: yeah that's a good question. There is no guarantee of that. I do think that especially the youth behavior risk survey is a long standing well vetted survey and that it accounts for that. That's, there's not going to be that social desirability bias that you might see if you were doing a face-to-face interview or a survey that students thought their teachers might be seeing. So you in this particular survey, you're more likely to get honest answers. But I think in any survey, you, there's, that op, there's that chance that students may not be answering honestly. But I think the way this one is done and the confidentiality and the anonymity that goes along with it, it's more likely to get better answers than some of the others that we see, for sure.
3: I think with all these surveys, it's it's yeah. probably underreporting yes. more than anything else. And I think that's, yeah, that's true of, of any kind of... Um, uh, Research done on sexual behavior it tends to be underreported. Yeah, I would and definitely so, agree. And so, so the, 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 the bad news is probably worse than we right. know, <laughs> unfortunately. And and the good news is is that in terms the good news is that you know you can find those surveys. You can look up on the CDC and and look at your state. You can look at very many 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 different risk factors, not just about sexual behavior, but all sorts of health issues. And so you just mm-hmm. do a by state um, search and see what's happening in your area and how it compares to the rest of the country right
1: sometimes media accounts will focus on the shocking but much less common accounts of very young teenage girls getting pregnant and of course this is something that we really worry about statistically th- the chances of Becoming pregnant as a teenager are much. They go up as as girls get older. So, um, talk about how we focus um, attention on those older teenagers who, particularly after the age of eighteen, there, there may be people who think, well, they're legally adults now but it's still pretty young to be raising a child. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that actually is one of the big national pushes. Two out of the three teen pregnancies are to women 18 and 19. And the thing is that it still very directly impacts their future earnings. It affects them just the same it would in high school. Maybe they've graduated high school, but the odds of them being able to finish college are still going to be the same. So there is a big push. It's actually a national initiative right now to better educate. And that's where I always come back to, where are these 18 and 19-year-olds going to get the information if they're not getting it in high school? Where where do they get it? So I, I think we have to address that. We're not just talking about educating them at 15, but we're talking about educating them so that at 18, 19, they can make sound decisions also. Well, and in some sense,
3: that's the age, too, where, again, it becomes more normative in their group, right? And right. so this this idea that okay it's all right i'm not in high school anymore i'm not a, you know i'm not a teen i'm not living at home perhaps uh so it's it's okay and and again not really thinking of the long term ramifications of those decisions uh, and so that's that becomes problematic as well yeah there
2: is a significant jump i mean you might look at sexual activity under age seventeen might be fifty percent, but by the time they're eighteen or nineteen, it's much more likely to be closer to eighty percent. So there is a significant jump in that, and some reports would say as much as ninety or ninety-five percent. I say twenty, twenty-one.
1: One eight hundred nine three three five three seven two is our number. Let's go next on the phone to Amelia in Fort Worth. Hi, Amelia. Hi. Hi. Go right ahead, please. Um. Well, you were talking about how there's
2: not a lot of resources. For teenagers who aren't receiving a sex education either in school or at home, and I was uh, homeschooled in a faith-based uh, home, didn't really get any sex education. But I have younger siblings. I'm now in my 20s and married. Um,
1: but do you have any resources that you would point towards someone in that situation um, if they're not
2: receiving it elsewhere, so that they don't go towards the wrong the wrong information? yes that's great we 're actually about to launch our website. Unfortunately, it is not launched yet, but once it 's up the the Alliance website, we will have great resources on there for exactly that reason, so that somebody could look and say what 's a great curriculum and there's actually going to be several that are faith based The other thing you can do is also go to the Centers for Disease Control website and they have a list of thirty one evidence based curriculum, many which are faith based so you can decide whether you want you know faith based abstinence only or abstinence plus, but they're all evidence-based good sound models that I would tell anybody to use.
1: 1-800-933-5372 is our number. Let's go next to Jean in Dallas. Hey, Jean. Hello, Jean. Thanks, Chris. Um, first, I want to thank both of you because I'm an alum. I did my undergraduate at Texas Woman's and my graduate at UTT. So oh, probably. Hey. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: this Topic that's near and dear to my heart because I've volunteered with Planned Parenthood for years. And the question I have to you guys, and, and maybe you've addressed this because
1: I've been listening in and out as I stream, these numbers are not new. Particularly the metric about Texas being the, the number one with second teen pregnancies. And obviously you guys are doing things, but what is the community doing? What are educational professionals doing this? Because this number is not changing. And I'll take my response off the air. Thank you very much. Thanks for your call.
2: Um, I think that there are several organizations, um, Allie's House, several that are a part of the alliance that are working directly with teen moms to prevent second pregnancies. The reality is, again, it comes back to accessibility, getting these teens tied into the programs that they need to, keeping them in school, getting them tied into services that can help them, and then getting them the accessibility to the birth control and contraception to prevent a second teen pregnancy. So there there are actually quite a few programs out there that are great. It's just, again, getting them tied into where they need to be.
3: Well, and, and you know, as a psychologist, thinking about sort of the social-emotional community that they're involved in, and perhaps, again, you know, there's there's several programs that that um, give them social support and sort of, you know, get together with other moms, and, and that kind of thing can make a big difference because oftentimes people will, will – uh, you know, become involved with, with this kind of behavior in order to fill a void, in order to not feel so lonely. And so having people who care about them, who support them, who help provide them with, with other um, ways to feel good about what they're doing and also give them some maybe mentoring or guidance will would make a big difference as well.
2: Yeah, actually, I was just going to say that um, all of my Students that I have at TW that are teen moms, I always ask them, "How how do you think you made it out? You know, how do you think you made it here?" Just because obviously I have an interest in this, and they, it's always the mentorship. Mm-hmm. It's always I think it's so key is that these young women have a mentor, somebody that has taken a personal interest in them to get them where they need to be and in
3: a sense of resilience and, right. too right? right and and that's what i see with my students too and you know the 3% who who are in college have great challenges mm-hmm. to stay in college and they have to worry about childcare and they have to worry about providing for their child etc and so even in the university setting having having you know structure set up that it would help support them as well that that could be wonderful absolutely
1: i doubt i doubt most teenagers will go to their parents for this permission anyway but is there a good answer to the question as to when young people are ready to engage in sexual activity if they choose to do so
2: I do not think so. (laughs) I do not think there is a good answer, a right age. I think it is very individual, and I think that's again where that parental communication early on of sex is a big thing, and it changes things, and it's you know there are risks involved, and it's not something that should be entered into lightly. And I think that that's going to be different for every child. On you know, coupled with whatever faith or values messaging, and that's why I think value messaging is so important because. It's giving the kids all the tools and then allowing them to figure it out kind of for themselves is really what I think. But I I don't I personally don't think that there is a a right age. I think I think obviously. Well, let me just qualify that. (laughs) Obviously, all of us would like kids to wait as long as they can. Mm -hmm. I mean, the older they are, the more likely they're going to be able to handle it both emotionally and physically and all of the risks that are associated with that.
3: There's actually a great documentary that you can get on Netflix. It's called Let's Talk About Sex, and it's done by an Australian documentary filmmaker who um, who basically looks at different cultures, particularly those that are very similar to ours in terms of the number of kids who are involved in sexual activity, um, what sort of the attitudes are, how parents deal with this issue. They look at the Netherlands and they compare it to our kids here. And it's, it's a wonderful sort of glimpse into how parents talk about these things, how parents support romantic relationships, how they, how they think about them in positive ways and, and you had talked about not always making sex negative and given that relationships with adolescents are not um, happening in the same way they were even 10 years ago having that discussion mm-hmm. too do you not want a boyfriend, are you not interested in a boyfriend why not and what does that mean because you know, those, those things are changing all the time and it's hard for a parent to keep up with what's happening in, their, in that youth culture, it's different all the time
1: I think we have time to um, take another call here. We have George on the line in Denton. Hi, George.
0: Hi there. My question is this. How important do you think access to contraceptives is to reducing teen pregnancy?
2: Okay, well, I think um, we have talked about this already, but I definitely think it's not the whole piece of the pie. It's a complicated issue, but I think that teens do need to have access to contraception. I think that you know, if, if they want to take responsibility, it's almost impossible for them to get long-acting birth control. And the American Academy of Pediatrics actually just came out with a position paper recommending an IUD or an implant on you know, the impl- implants. Like long-acting birth control for teens is the best way for them to go. And it's almost impossible for them to get both from a financial cost and or just accessibility to a clinic. And so I think that it is a key piece of the puzzle, not the only part. It's, it's, it's a complex and complicated issue, but definitely important.
1: When we were teenagers, HIV was a new thing, and everybody was really terrified. I don't know how that affected people's behavior, but it was on everyone's mind. Now that really scary diseases like that are, are, are in some ways manageable, and I don't want to minimize right. the risk, are young people in in your undergrad classes as aware of the dangers of STDs?
3: I think I think they are because we're introducing them to mm-hmm. those dangers. But I do think that they've some of them have had messages um, that are just not scientifically accurate mm-hmm. uh, through different educational. Uh, Legacies that they've that they've been told. Some of them have been told that that condoms are not effective. Um, some of them have been told that that they're not they're not going to um, protect you from STIs, et cetera. And so they come with a lot of questions because they they hear certain things and then they're get they're given other information and they sort of want to know well what's what's real. And so again, there's there's lots of great studies. The CDC has a lot of information about that. We do know that a lot of um, adolescents in Dallas are not using condoms at all. Right. Uh, and so perhaps they're using other birth control methods. But, again, using condoms is the most effective way to uh, to protect you from HIV and other STIs.
2: Right. And I would just add, I, I know we've been talking primarily about teen pregnancies, so that has been our focus. But HIV cases are on the rise in youth, especially in Dallas. Hmm. They are not going down. They are going up, as well as other STDs, STIs, chlamydia, HPV. We have one in four teens are infected with an STD here in, in Texas. So, I mean, it is a significant problem and higher than other states.
1: <laughs> and the irony is that, that condoms are like the one form of birth control that you yes. can buy over the counter and there is no age limit, right?
2: Right. Mm-hmm. They can go in and buy condoms. Hmm. But they're expensive. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I suppose that's, that's mm-hmm. true. And right. uh, there are and places- And embarrassing to buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Um, <laughs> are there places where that uh, the cost is lower and the embarrassment factor is reduced? that teams would go find a clinic or not many
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, schools are not allowed to hand them out I I do off the record know some school nurses that do (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) but they're not supposed to Um, so that is a significant problem it's it's not like they can go Planned Parenthood clinics have them at a reduced cost um, and probably some of the other family planning clinics
1: The launch of the upcoming project of the North Texas Alliance to Reduce Teen Pregnancy happens August 21st. You can find out more on their Facebook page. We've been speaking this hour with Mandy Goldman, who is assistant professor in the Department of Health Studies at Texas Women's University, and Joanna Gensch, who is assistant dean in the School of Behavioral and Brain Sciences at UT Dallas. It's been really interesting to have both of you with us today. Thank you so much for making this time.
3: Thank you. Thank you. We're enjoying
1: it. Think is produced by Stephen Becker and engineered by Shelley Canavy. Lindsay Connect is assistant producer. Jeff Whittington is executive producer. You can find me on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think, and you can contact the show via email at think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day.